In Canada's criminal justice system, we see an overrepresentation of Indigenous women and also women of African descent. This is a story about overcoming challenges. It's about hope, compassion, and empathy. But this is also a story about historical injustices and contemporary failures. Who have we failed the most in this country? Who have we harmed left, right, and center? Well, it is Indigenous women, first and foremost. And so what are we doing with the quote-unquote Indian problem that we know of from residential schools? Oh, we're locking them up again. At the center of the story are two communities, urban Indigenous and African Nova Scotian women and the troubling intersections they face with gender-based violence and the justice system. So people are just living in fear of being able to even tell their story because they know that they're not going to be believed or if the story isn't as clean and clear-cut and dry that they know they're going to be treated a certain different way from the system as well. Over the next six episodes, we will share the stories of women from the urban Indigenous and African Nova Scotian communities. We'll also explain how four incredible organizations came together to address the systemic gaps, barriers, and injustices facing these women from a transformative, culturally informed perspective. Even the development of this project deviated from traditional ways of doing and uh, traditional ways of knowing. I'm Cheyenne Labrador. This is the Creating Communities of Care podcast. Episode one, where we started. Indigenous people have uh, a really rough history with Canada. There's a lot of history there as far as oppression, systemic racism, colonialism. Um, you know, Indigenous people were not allowed to leave the reservation, were not allowed to get an education. This is Tanya Marshall, a victim support services navigator with the Mi'kmaq Legal Support Network, who comes from Budladek First Nation. These days, she lives and works in urban Jabuktuk, also called Halifax. Tanya says that for the Indigenous populations living in Jabuktuk and across Canada, many social issues facing communities today have roots reaching back generations. You know, a lot of the things that happened, you know, residential school and day school, as we're finding out recently, the abuse that they went through in those schools and in the community and by Indian agents um, really impacted their ability to parent and to have a family. If your children are taken away from you, that's trauma, not on just the parents, but on the children as well. And a lot of folks found avenues to deal with that trauma, right? And not the most healthy ways. And if you're put into a school at a young age and you're not shown affection and love and you're abused, how do you become a functional parent when you leave these schools and have children of your own, right? That created a lot of trauma that's been passed down. And we have to unlearn that trauma and heal from that trauma, but that doesn't happen you know, overnight. Emma Halpern is the executive director of the Elizabeth Fry Society of Mainland Nova Scotia. For years, she has worked directly with incarcerated and criminalized women. She knows firsthand the toll the justice system takes from individuals and society. What we know about the people we are imprisoning is they are the, some of the most vulnerable, some of the most harmed, and therefore have some of the lowest levels of education, some of the 
the highest levels of poverty, very complex mental health issues, cognitive challenges, very severe addictions. Those are the folks in behind the walls. Her clients, who belong to overrepresented communities in Canadian prisons and jails, are often the ones who have the fewest supports to navigate the system they find themselves in. The minute I walked in those doors, I started to see the incredible need, the oppression that was happening behind the walls, the lack of transparency. I had a window into things that most Canadians never get a chance to see, which is that behind walls there was no rule of law and there was no access to justice. The huge number of Indigenous and African Nova Scotian women currently serving time in Canadian institutions are not the hardened criminals we'd expect to find. Typically, they're victims of gender-based violence being charged alongside their offending partner. Once they're in the system, their problems mount as they embark on another abusive relationship, this time with Correctional Service Canada. There is a double jeopardy, especially for a Black and Indigenous woman, because there is such a strong history of the government taking away their children. This is Makisa. She's a lawyer and coordinator for the Creating Communities of Care Project, also working with EFRI. She says the women she works with experience a range of pressures that are often made worse by their incarceration. There's an expectation placed on women, uh, specifically mothers, to be able to Um, protect themselves from violence and then also protect their children. So when people do call in about family violence, it's seen as a danger towards the children. And so the children are taken away rather than keeping the mother safe or keeping the mother protected with her children um, from the violence. So having that lens of a black woman Uh, Obviously, the criminal justice system over-criminalizes and often end up killing black men. So they don't want to call the police um, even when they're being harmed because they're afraid that the police are going to kill their partners. So there's definitely a fear from both sides of who do you tell, who do you go to? How can I call the police when the police aren't going to protect me? You know, a lot of these times kids are taken from their parents and and a lot of people in our community believe that this is the new residential school, that kids are being taken away in a different way. Um, They're being traumatized, taken away from their communities, having a loss of identity, going back to their communities and not feeling like they belong. Those things can also lead to addiction. And so these people also have children and the cycle just continues. Like, you know, they've grown up in the foster care system. A lot of times there's abuse in that system. So, you know, the cycle just continues. You know, they they age out of foster care. They end up in the justice system. And it just is a continuous cycle. And that's basically the quick version of, of how this overrepresentation and there's a lot of systemic racism as well it's not just this person you know doing this offending behavior you know they could be stealing food i i had clients in the past where they were hungry they they were you know had an addiction they went into a store because they were literally hungry stole food ended up in the justice system for something just minor right and then you go into the prison the justice system and that whole environment breeds more criminal behavior. The troubled relationship between marginalized communities and family services in Canada is no clearer than in Indigenous communities. Census data indicates that in 2021, 
53.8% of children in foster care under the age of 14 were Indigenous, even though Indigenous children make up only 7.7% of children under 14 nationally. The systems and mechanisms responsible for the social problem of violence against and the over-criminalization of Indigenous and Black women are as interconnected as they are complex. There are no simple solutions here, but that doesn't excuse inaction. The voices you've heard here represent the wider network of the Creating Communities of Care Project, women whose passions and values drive them each day to show up for marginalized communities in ways others do not. The injustices they see on a daily basis shapes their resolve to do the impossible, to take on the system in a new, transformative way. The Transition House Association of Nova Scotia, or THANS, is an umbrella organization representing 11 partners from across the province, each focused on addressing the issue of violence against women. Anne de St. Croix is the provincial coordinator for THANS. The project was inspired by a framework of Indigenous customary law and Afrocentricity um, in their approach to care and support for Indigenous and African Nova Scotian survivors of gender-based violence. So that's a long-winded way of saying um, basically culturally relevant approaches to service provision for those who have experienced violence. Um, typically the formal institutions that provide these services follow kind of a one-size-fits-all, and sometimes that doesn't work for everyone. So this project is trying to create an alternative approach to this kind of cookie-cutter service provision. The idea for this probably came back in uh, 2013, 2014. Senator Wanda Thomas-Bernard is an independent senator from Nova Scotia. She is also a social worker and professor emeritus at the Dalhousie School of Social Work. It was just a growing awareness that many of the programs and services that were being offered in Nova Scotia to address gender-based violence were leaving certain women out. So Indigenous women were not really reflected in a lot of our work. And uh, women from the African Nova Scotian communities were not truly reflected in a lot of the work. Before her appointment to the Senate in October of 2016, Senator Wanda was working on what would become the framework for the Creating Communities of Care project. She was there at the very beginning. That's when we started having conversations about, you know, what do we need to do differently? And it was when the Wage Canada funding call came out that we realized we could do something truly innovative to work specifically with those two communities around issues of gender-based violence. Engaging with systems so mired in colonialism and oppression required learning and unlearning much in the search for solutions. So bringing the Afrocentric ways of knowing into this work and Indigenous ways of knowing into this work really made a significant difference. So part of it is starting with decolonizing, decolonizing our minds, you know, decolonizing our, our processes for doing the work. But the advisory council had started that in the way they developed this grant. So that in itself is significant. 
and something that I'd like to make sure we highlight in this in this podcast because it's an important uh, piece of the work uh, and you know that organization basically saying we know we have to do things differently and part of doing things differently is not doing a traditional grant application but really starting so the saying the truth and reconciliation uh, commission use this saying and, and we support it and use it as well nothing about us without us and and i would say that for both communities that was the driving um, philosophy. And that's a driving philosophy in Afrocentric work. It's also driving philosophy in Indigenous practices. For Mukiza, from EFRI, solutions lie outside of the existing system and its deeply flawed mechanisms. We feel like you can't reform racism. You can't reform a system that was built on racism and genocide. Creating Communities of Care tries to build communities and build systems outside of the criminal justice system because we feel like you can't train away, like no matter how much cultural competency we try to put into the system and trying to um, get people who have been trained um, basically have bias within how they approach people, um, training them to see us as Black women or as Indigenous women as human, we just don't think that's realistic. For Anne from Thans, no solution can be found until the women affected by these problems are allowed to step into their voices, to be heard, and to be believed. One thing that we have heard from clients is this feeling of hopelessness when you are within these systems. Um, you feel voiceless. And I think anecdotally, we've heard that Oftentimes, for example, with the criminal justice system, it re-traumatizes the survivor because they have to continue to be in contact with their abuser. Um, and often the criminal justice system is used as a way to further abuse the survivor by the aggressor. Um, we've seen, for example, abusers who will represent themselves so that they can cross-examine the survivor who's accusing them of violence. We've also seen other coercive tactics like continuously getting new lawyers to prolong the process so that the survivor has to deal with this abuser in the system for years on end. So I think those are just some of the ways that that traditional structure can be harmful. Um, it doesn't take the survivor's needs into account, and it definitely doesn't center the survivor's needs. One of the most damaging symptoms is that people will choose not to engage with those systems at all. Um, so as we all know, all of the cases of intimate partner violence that are reported to police or that go through the criminal justice system are, are not the only ones. A lot of them go unreported. And I think part of that is asking them what they want and need rather than telling them what they need to do. What we're seeing is these people don't just happen to wake up one day and say, I'm going to go break the law. For Tanya from MLSN, the only solution to the problems faced by urban Indigenous and African Nova Scotian communities is to break generational cycles of trauma and abuse. They have a lot of history 
of trauma in their childhoods. And we know that trauma is the biggest indicator of, you know, becoming an addict. And so because they have this history and they get involved in addiction, you know, people who have an addiction will pretty much do anything to feed that addiction. And and the reason why they're addicted is because they're masking the pain, right, that they're carrying within themselves. And then because of that, this cycle of, you know, addiction, and then they become parents and they were never shown affection or love from their parents, or if they were, it was mixed with, you know, cycles of abuse and which is dysfunctional. And that is like, you know, carried through to, you know, the next generation, the next, until someone decides like, I'm going to stop this cycle. And it's hard work. It's, you know, I've had to do that work myself and I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but it's a lifelong, um, you know, journey, I think. Breaking generational curses and disrupting systemic inequality isn't fast or easy work. In order for the Creating Communities of Care project to have its intended impact, Senator Wanda knew they needed to bring the right partners to the table. The conversations that were happening at that time was that we would be deliberate and intentional with regards to reaching out to agencies and organizations that we knew were specifically dealing with those populations. The communities were, it was very much community-led and community-driven. So those agencies had representatives in terms of who was doing the work on the ground, but also in terms of who the the uh, agency and organizational partners were. So the work was happening on two levels, that sort of policy development kind of level, and also that individual uh, work that was happening in the, in the day-to-day. So the only organization back at that time that was doing work with uh, women of African descent was the Association of Black Social Workers. So we have the EFRI Society, the Association of Black Social Workers, and then the two Mi'kmaq agencies were identified specifically because of the work they were doing with Mi'kmaq women and families and communities. And I think what people who were driving the project quickly realized was that the two communities were very different. And so how you do that work really needed to be identified by the specific communities. In the four years since its conception, the Creating Communities of Care project has changed lives. That's what's great about Creating Communities of Care because we have these community organizations who are on the ground in community, and then we also have the survivors who are able to utilize their voice and let the service providers know exactly what it is that they need um, because it does vary from person to person and it certainly varies across cultural contexts as well. Anything that I can do to kind of encourage people to share their stories or their experiences or just support friends or family that may be experiencing gender-based violence, I'm here for that. I still, to this day, don't underestimate the power of the public and the community and, and individuals coming together when there has been a harm and a wrong or standing up and saying this isn't okay and that that is how change happens ultimately. We need programs like this, things for incarcerated women, for women who have been impacted by violence, because that's where you will find success. Because of residential school, because of intergenerational trauma, there's that disconnection to their culture, loss of language, ceremonies, when you provide them with culture, when you provide them with ceremonies, that gives them that deep inside where they feel their worth, 
they feel uh, you know like I am important you know I'm worthy my voice matters hope is such a huge piece and so we talk a lot about hope and about you know what we can do over these next number of years to, to keep hope alive and to remind her that her life is not over it is communities of care ultimately that is keeping that hope alive that is connecting to her and keeping her connected to our community it's given hope where there was once only despair it's provided community to those who once felt alone it's reconnected women with culture language, and ceremony that was taken away from them and their ancestors. And it's helped to broaden the conversation around gender-based violence. I have not given up on this case. I, I believe she was wrongly convicted. I believe that this was a dramatic failure of our justice system and that in no way should this young woman be in there for 25 years. There is still much work to do, and there will continue to be work to do until the social problem of violence against women has been fully addressed. We still largely cling to a culture of silence and complicity, but each time a woman is given the chance to heal in a holistic, culturally specific context, we are given the chance to learn, reflect, and to grow. This woman spoke up about the history of abuse that she suffered through in her marriages and just the intimate partner violence that she's suffered from her partners. But she said the worst abusive relationship I've ever been in is the one with Correctional Service Canada. If you heard your own story throughout this podcast and are interested in learning more about a Communities of Care partner organization, check out the show notes for links and resources. If you are facing gender-based violence in your own life, know that it isn't your fault and there are those who will help you. I'm Cheyenne Labrador, Wallalan. We'll